Hi, this is Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Welcome to our podcast. Today's chat is an excerpt from my book, Handmade, Creative Focus in the Age of Distraction. This is a chapter called Beginner's Mind. I started. It's what you do. When I began, I was adrift in a sea of woodworking possibility. The questions were huge. How do I stand? Where do my hands go? What is this tool for? I moved from job to job, trying to take on things that taught me something new. There was a great old hardware store across town called Wink's Hardware. In my early days, it was in a one-story building with narrow aisles and shelves crammed full of hardware. If you needed something, the salesman would sometimes invite you in back, where the array of all things hardwarian were on display. They would take you down some dim pathway, turn once, turn again, and I'd be lost. We would stop in the middle of a bank of boxes with shelves lined with gadgets, gears, goo-gaws, pulleys, drill bits, files, saws, and bolts, and brass, and bungs. And all these things are stacked up to the ceiling, and they would pull out a hidden wooden shelf, hidden somewhere in plain sight, and find the required box of widgets or wing nuts or whatnots, and start to count it exactly what I needed. The store was from a very different time, and felt like the best place to go look at things. The old salesmen there were a bit crusty and intimidating to me. They must have gotten tired of long-haired knuckleheads like me asking questions. Going up to the counter and requesting even something simple like screws needed courage because I felt I was on display to a whole lineup of customers measuring my salt. First time in, I had to suffer the embarrassment of not knowing I needed a number to be served. So I was standing there trying to look cool, experienced, and then a salesman emerged from the back of the store and looked up and called out, Number 43! What? Numbers? Where was the thingy? I'm not here for donuts. Like at the bakery at home that has all the numbers and all the people. I got all flustered and tried to be calm. But I hadn't noticed the number wheel, which I found hiding in the middle of the counter in plain sight. I got my number and waited a bit more. The salesman finally called out a number and I piped up, Me? And he came over and asked, What can I do for you? I need some screws, I said. What kind of screws, he asked. Screws for putting together wood. What else? I thought to myself, what else? He then launched into the litany of my ignorance. Flathead screws or oval or roundhead? How about panhead? Do you want wood screws, sheet metal screws, lag screws or sheetrock screws? Zinc plated or stainless? Do you want brass? We have bronze. Do you want square drive, Phillips head or slotted? What size? A number eight or a number ten? How long do you want them? It was an endless train of items, it seemed. He waited for the list to settle over me like dust. I hadn't studied enough. My feet were sweating in embarrassment. Well, I didn't know what I was asking for or what I wanted, and that was that. I came to the store for help. That's why I came. Now, some of the sales staff liked to push the long-haired types around, except for the one older lady whose father had started this store. She was always nice. But I just wanted some screws to put wood together, and I was ignorant. I inevitably chose slotted wood screws because that must be what I needed. They were named that, after all. Note to self. These screws were, and remain, in fact, the worst imaginable screws for any kind of work, woodworking or no. You need to drill two pilot holes, one for the screw threads and one for the slightly larger shank. Your screwdriver needs to be ground to fit the head slot so you don't mar the head, which I inevitably did. And then you have to put it in by hand, no drill gun to drive it in with. Who knew this stuff? Screws were all I wanted, please, to build with. At this time, the craft revival was on. I saw no need to be like anyone else I knew in school or out. 
I might as well have called myself a handyman or a carpenter for all that most people would understand what I was trying to do. I wanted to be a furniture maker. To me, that meant that I would be a builder, a designer, a thinker. How is it done? How do you make a life where you get to create things with your hands that forces you to solve problems mechanical, structural, and aesthetic, while putting yourself through a variety of new and strange movements in order to build something good? How do you make at least a small living at this? How do you swim against the mainstream culture that wants only quick, cheap, and disposable? How do you answer the question, is there any value in quality? I would wander over to the Sears store, and on the second floor I'd gaze at the tool wall, wondering what in the world these things did. What sort of language did they speak? Forget language. What did these tools actually do? I couldn't afford any of them yet, but I needed to know their purpose. I had no clue except what my books told me. Marking gauges? To mark what? Sliding bevels slid where exactly? Some of these tools Harvey and I had used pouring concrete, but a hammer only does one job really well. Chalk box is not much help building furniture. What about chisels? These tools did not come with a manual. They were quiet and elegant and complete in their silence. It became clear that to do this work, I would have to teach myself these new skills. Jane was my partner then and a godsend to me. A raven-haired beauty, she had the right amount of daring and nerve to stand up to me in my loud frustrations during my education. She helped me through this work while she supported us with her own job at a veterinary hospital. I had $1,000 savings bonds from my grandmother that I cashed in so I could buy some tools. And Jane and I went back to that old house of my father's and to the tool shed out back where I had played and been punished in to get some of his old tools. I had the key, but I couldn't get it into the lock of the shed door. No matter what I tried, it wouldn't fit. I was getting peeved. Jane knew me well enough by then to step in and handle the matter. She got the key in the lock and promptly broke it off. We were stumped. We had to go back in disgrace to my dad and get some bolt cutters from him to snap off the lock. And we finally got inside this dim place. I stared out the one window, standing at the bench with a musty tool roll of Stanley number 45 plane irons in my hand. These are my grandfather's, so I took them. I still have them close to my bench. Some tools of my father's I took as well, since he had no use or interest in them. His old Stanley block plane, a leatherhead mallet, a few chisels. I gathered up what I could, good and bad, and left that shed of memory behind. When my friend Joel lit out for New Zealand, Jane and I moved into his house together. Joel made it as far as the observatories in Hawaii. He had used the unheated garage there for his metalwork, but in this three-room house there was also a basement. It had a kitchen cabinet that opened right down into it. You could crawl through the cabinet door and up into the kitchen if you wanted. The house had been a servant's quarters for the grander house out front, or maybe it was just a shack for someone working at the train yards close by. In any case, it was hidden by the giant blackberry bushes in the garage out front. Three rooms lined up straight together with a glassed-in doorless porch so the wind blew right through. To the right, there was a stairway down to the basement. I took my dad's tools and what I had gathered with me to my new basement laboratory. It was here I retreated to teach myself woodworking. It took four years. The lumberyard turned out to be no better for my confidence than the hardware store. It was, in fact, worse because Gordon roamed the yard where I bought my hardwoods. Gordon made my father look charitable, kind, meek, 
of a sunny disposition. Gordon hated my face when I walked into his yard, which was nice and neat, before my ass walked in and messed it all up. What do you want, he would say in greeting, scowling. I would tell him what I was looking for, and he'd walk me down this dark ceiling chapel of lumber, row after row of wood stacked in great piles up to the roof, three or four stacks high. The railroad line went right behind their building where it would stop, and they would unload the cars filled with stacks of lumber right into their yard. Huge piles of wood everywhere. And I always seemed to need the stack of wood on the bottom. Which made Gordon even more cranky than before. Because now he had to fire up the forklift and find a spot for the other two piles and move them. Grab those goddamn stickers so I can put this load down. I would put the stickers on the ground and he'd drop his double stack onto them. And I'd get the heck out of his way because he might run me down with that stinky old propane powered forklift of his. He'd park the forklift in front of the pile I was after and he would get off and say, Well, because you see, he was expecting me to grab the board right off the top of the pile. Well, it doesn't take a lot of experience to notice that the top of the pile might be good or it might be the first layer of shit. And you can't just grab off the top if you're a poor woodworker just learning and scraping by. You have to look through the pile of wood. Gordon stared. I stared back. He knew. And eventually he came to know me and what I was after. The best boards I could find, the clearest with no knots anywhere and no twist and no bowing either. Better if they had terrific color and not much end checking or splitting. I simply wanted the best. I thought I was being reasonable. Gordon grumbled loudly when he saw me tearing into a stack. Put it back the way you found it. He would then hop back into his forklift and motor out of there, leaving me to find some other stickers to stack my lumber on. And by God, I would look through that pile for the three or four boards I needed. Oh, and maybe one extra because it was so pretty. And if I didn't grab it then, then it wouldn't be there the next time. I'd pile that stack up better than before. A time or two, Gordon would come back and straighten things out, jumping out of his forklift and taking another stick to slam it into the ends of the pile I had mismanaged. He also showed me how to line up one end of the pile and overlay one wider board over a narrower one, building up the pile so it was all locked together. I became neat. I became respectful of Gordon's piles of lumber. He knew eventually that he could let me look through his wood without too much bother. But it was a puckering experience at first, and Gordon seemed to delight in that. There was a lot of humility to learn if I was going to teach myself woodworking on the cheap. Still in all those places were where I had to go, and it was the education I had to get. Me and my buddy Cameron were at the lumberyard one day when Professor Gordon surprised the hell out of us by handing us a new lesson to ponder. He gave us each a piece of wood. Iroko, it was called. It turns out that Iroko is a very hard, very pretty, chocolate-brown wood that is super rot-resistant and tears up your sinus passages when you make any dust out of it. It sends folks to the hospital with nosebleeds if you're not wearing a mask. I still have that piece of Iroko. I think it was a gift. Either that or Gordon was trying to kill us off. This is a quote that I included in the book. It's from Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Waterston, author, creator. Calvin says, why can't I stay up late? It's not fair. His father says, the world isn't fair, Calvin. Calvin replies, I know, but why isn't it ever unfair in my favor? This next chapter is called Learning Curve. 
I taught myself many things over the years because I didn't have or couldn't find a teacher. When I was little, my brother and dad started to play chess, but wouldn't show me how. Maybe I was too small still, or they didn't think me smart enough, or there was room for only two competitors. I'm not sure. I could watch. One day they had the chessboard set up and had to leave to run some errand. I sat down at the board, found the small instruction book that had come with it, and taught myself how to play. Determination was always my strong suit. My first woodworking machine was a radial arm saw. A more useless piece of out-of-square, do-everything-poorly-designed machine than you could ever hope to own. I thought I needed one. I tuned it so I could at least make some square cuts. Of course, everything I built then was square because that's all I could do. My first goal was to build without nails or screws, although sometimes those were necessary as well. I tried to learn along the way. Some days I woke up with a plan. Other days, most days then, I woke too late, the dawn long gone, with a simple question for myself, what am I going to do today? I was free-spirited as planning was for a more formal life but gradually I realized that I needed some kind of an idea of where I was headed, goals to direct me. I needed a sense of direction for my work. Otherwise, I had little to show for my efforts at the end of the day. I thought I had an idea of what a furniture maker should be, what it should look like. It looks nothing like that now. Plans are obsolete as soon as they're made because the world changes around you the very next second. Yet I think that my life retained some flavor of the image I once imagined. The beginner's mind is so hurried. He is in a rush because he sees exactly what he wants, but he wants it right away. There's too much to learn, too much to grasp. Who can wait? I want to be great. I know what greatness is. I want to be great right now. The beginner presses. Everyone believes that accidents occur elsewhere to other people. Other people. Stupid people. But not me. They think that they will always be alert and on their toes. They believe that since they have done things in a certain way for so long, then they must be safe. I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for years. I've never been cut before. But there are no guarantees. Maybe you've just been lucky all this time. Every one of us who works at the bench will have an accident in the shop. There is no doubt of that. It can happen any time we get in a hurry, forget our safe habits, or do something stupid. The questions are, how bad will your accident be? Will it be blunt force trauma, or will blood be shed? I began to collect tools and machines to do my work. I built a solid new bench for my basement shop. I still use it. A tool cabinet made of pine, built without knowing about wood movement, hangs on my wall and is slowly pulling itself apart in my shop right now. Being self-taught was a slow method of education. It took years of practice to get good at anything. Accidents occurred, of course. I would cut myself in a series of two or three wounds at a time. I would cut myself on a chisel reaching for another tool in my tool cabinet. I would cut myself running my finger over the edge of a freshly plain board or slice myself on the edge of some dried glue left hard and razor sharp on the edge of a joint. I tried not to bleed on things. But nothing can teach or prepare you for the first time you get bit by a machine. That day I was in a hurry, of course, and my joiner knives were dull. The joiner is a powered planer with spinning knives that rotate at you. 
You set your wood on a metal table and feed it past this cutter head, and as it rotates, it takes a series of shavings off the wood. I heard of a shop teacher who would take a broom handle and turn on the joiner and feed the broom handle straight down into the cutter head to demonstrate its power. It was a very effective demonstration, I think. I was building a small walnut box, running one of his short ends through the joiner to clean it up before gluing. I was in a hurry. The knives were dull. The wood bounced as I fed it through, so I pushed down hard on it to counteract the chatter of the dull knives. I had nothing between me and them except a thin, half-inch piece of walnut. I pushed down too much on the front end of the board as I fed it into the knives. It tipped into the cutter head. The walnut kicked out of my hands across the shop, and my left hand was left tickling the ivories, so to speak. My middle finger got nicked by the cutters before I yanked it away, and it didn't hurt. It felt more like a punch to my finger. Then it started to bleed. That's when you know it's bad, when you don't feel any pain and you're bleeding. When you have your accident, you'll immediately go into shock. Your body will shut down so that, if you can stand the sight of your own blood, you'll have to figure out how to bind yourself up and go get help if that's what's needed. That's what I did. I got my finger above the level of my heart, applied a presser bandage to the wound, and watched it turn red with my blood. My stupid blood. Because that's what everyone says next. That was stupid. Everyone who has an accident in the shop knows that it was usually preventable. It usually is. It is usually your fault. Something you did that you could have prevented by slowing down or by understanding how the machine can bite you. I didn't know then that I needed push sticks right at the joiner to protect me. These are pieces of wood with handles that hold the workpiece in place and stay put between you and the cutters. I didn't know. I had been lucky so far, so I thought I was safe. An accident is a huge opportunity to learn something important. One takes a massive failure of common sense or logic and has to turn it into a learning experience. You must understand what has just happened and why it happened and then never repeat those same actions again. When you get bit by your stupidity, you have to endure the healing time, of course, and the inconvenience of a bandage and a splint, as in my case. You also have to endure the fact of your own stupidity, that you hurt yourself. It's shameful. Why would I do such a thing to myself? This is the unspoken question. Why would I allow myself to be hurt by being careless or sloppy? I was lucky in a way with this first accident. I reacted quickly and pulled my finger out fast. I just had it bandaged for a few months, and I lost some feeling in the fingertip for a while, but it came back. The fingertip was unscarred, so I was very lucky. Many are not. Come by the shop sometime. Come by the studio. I have four push sticks now by my joiner for different lengths and widths of wood. So even if I started a cut, I can stop and grab one to finish the cut up safely. I also kept that piece of ruined and stained walnut. It's in the shop with my blood on it as is that splint close by my bench. I pull them out every once in a while, every once in a long while, to remind myself to slow down. This has been Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. I read a couple of chapters, chapter sections from chapter five and six in my book, Handmade. Thanks very much for listening. It's been fun uh, sharing this stuff with you. Please check out our website, northwestwoodworking.com for our schedule of classes. We've got some great classes coming up this spring, the hand tool shop, three weeks of hand tool work. 
and our summer class schedule is also on our website. So I hope you'll check things out and uh, come by the studio and say hi. Take care.